0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books. The Socialism Conference is back. The largest socialism conference in North America returns this September 2nd through 5th in Chicago, and registration is now live. Join hundreds of other activists, organizers, abolitionists, and socialists for four days of discussion and debate about radical politics, history, and strategy. Participate in panels, lectures, and workshops on class struggle unionism, police and prison abolition, black feminism, reproductive justice, working-class internationalism, capitalist crisis, tenant organizing, Palestinian liberation, and more. Speakers at Socialism 2022 will include Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, David Harvey, Harsha Aaliyah, Derica Purnell... Femi Taiwo, Kim Kelly, Mohammed El-Kurd, Anand Gopal, Sophie Lewis, and many more. I will also be at the Socialism Conference recording a live episode of The Dig. I don't know about what or with whom, but it's going to be great, and I hope to see you there. The Socialism Conference is brought to you by Haymarket Books. Visit socialismconference.org to learn more and register today. Register before July 8th for the early bird discount. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What is going on with capitalism? Is it even still capitalism? The power of tech and finance, alongside the growing sense that the system is ruled more by brazen predation than by good old-fashioned labor exploitation, has thinkers from the Marxist left all the way to the neoliberal and even neo reactionary right convinced that we've left capitalism entirely and entered neo-feudalism. My guest today is Yevgeny Morosov, and he argues that this bleak period that we're living through is in fact still a thoroughly capitalist one. We're discussing his new left review essay, Critique of Techno-Feudal Reason, and I'll link to that essay in the show notes. This is a theoretically complex discussion that, among other things, draws on and examines long-running Marxist debates over the transition to capitalism from feudalism and, relatedly, the relative force of expropriation versus exploitation under capitalism to determine what exactly to make of today's political economic order. I try to break things down as much as possible, but it's a balance between doing that and going deeper into the debates and analysis, so you may need to hit rewind or to look up a concept or two. The scholars that Morosov is critiquing, and there are a lot of variations, Marxist and non-Marxist, of this argument that we'll cover. So what I'm saying here is a simplification and aggregation, but these scholars argue in general that capitalism is no longer the competitive and innovative force that secures surplus value through what appears in mystified form to be voluntarily contracted labor exploitation. Instead, capitalists increasingly rely on raw political power to coercively secure capital through everything from rents to cheap government-provided capital, a means of extracting the surplus that looks a lot more like feudalism. Morosov's argument against this line of thought can be summarized as follows. One, forms of political dispossession and expropriation are central features of capitalism, rather than aberrations or departures from it. Two, Rentierism is also a common feature of capitalism. Three, but anyhow, many of the tech firms that are said to be rentiers are in fact more typical capitalist firms in their business models. And four, it's only an overly narrow conception of what comprises capitalism and its rules of reproduction that might lead us to the erroneous conclusion that we're entering something else like neo feudalism. There's a lot there, it's a fascinating discussion. Okay. A reminder that The Dig is on summer schedule for July and August, and that means we're only recording two episodes a month rather than the regular four. Some weeks we'll be posting an episode from our archives, and some weeks we may post nothing at all. But... It's quite unlikely you've run out of dig content. We have hundreds of episodes organized by topic and by guest at thedigradio.com. Next week, we'll be airing our September 2018 interview with Nancy Fraser, which pairs quite nicely with this week's episode. You can also find all of our weekly, or for the next two months bi weekly, newsletters at thedigradio.com. But wouldn't you rather get those newsletters delivered straight to your email inbox? That's one great reason among many great reasons to contribute to the dig at Patreon.com/slash/the-dig. Contribute any amount at all, and we will email you our wonderful newsletter. Contribute $10 or more a month, and we will send you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. But the best reason to contribute is because that's how we keep the show up and running. We don't pay well any episode, so that everyone. Can listen, regardless of your ability to pay. But that only works because those of you who can afford to contribute do so. So if that is you, please chip in what feels right. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Yevgeny Morosov, who has written several books and essays about technology and politics. Trained in the history of science at Harvard, he is also the founder of The Syllabus, a knowledge curation service. His podcast about the radical history of computing and cybernetic planning in Latin America will launch later this year. I will post a link to Yevgeny's website and to the syllabus in the show notes. Yevgeny Morasov, welcome to The Dig.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: You write, quote, Many adherents of the neo-feudal thesis contend that its rise is concomitant with that of Silicon Valley. Thus, terms like techno-feudalism, digital feudalism, and information feudalism are frequently bandied around. Smart feudalism is yet to gain much traction. But it may not be far away. Before we get into why you think this argument is wrong, let's clarify exactly what they're arguing. What, what about the rise of digital technology has caused so many thinkers to believe that we're exiting capitalism altogether? And where do other hallmarks of the neoliberal era, namely financialization and globalization, fit into this narrative?
1: Sure. Um, well, there is this argument on the left mostly, but as I point out in this recent essay I've written also on the right, uh, which says that capitalism is no longer what it used to be and that the dynamic that used to be characterized by innovation, by with all of the costs, you know exploitation, pollution and so forth, you know nobody's saying that capitalism was perfect, but at least, Broadly, I think there was some agreement, even among its critics, Marx, of course, being uh, the foremost of them, that capitalism, by and large, did result in innovation of some kind. And by subjecting market participants to competition, it forced them to produce new practices, engage in new techniques of production, make new products, and to some extent, society moved forward. Right? With some costs, and of course, Marxists would tell you that it would be impossible to move to the next stage without actually passing to socialism first, because there are certain blockages that current relations of production costs. I mean, we can bracket out all of that. But the underlying understanding of capitalism has traditionally been that it's a system for innovation. Recently, of course, uh, looking at the performance of the global economy in many different dimensions, Uh, Some of them having to do, of course, with finance, uh, some of them having to do with the fact that there is more and more money that has to be paid for intellectual property of various kinds in patents, trademarks, royalty fees and so forth. Some of it has to do with the fact that certain services like artificial intelligence have become central to how many companies operate some point out to the dominance of the real estate sector. I mean, there are all sorts of trends, so to say, and tendencies in the current contemporary system which result in something other than innovation, right? So a lot of people have been making this argument that maybe what we are looking at is a system that's stagnating, that's dominated by rentiers, that has lost its innovative edge of some kind. And that essentially results in a couple of very powerful people using all sorts of extra economic means, so to say, so relying on the power of law or relying on the fact that they have monopolized access to certain types of uh, knowledges or data, if you can put it that way. And they're basically using that privileged access to make money without necessarily investing anything new in this innovative dynamic that has been associated with capitalism. So some people take this argument even further. And they don't say that this is just some kind of stagnation within capitalism or that some kind of a rentier turn in capitalism, but that's actually a return of feudalism. Don't they operate? is a very peculiar definition of feudalism, but I think the underlying conviction is that we are moving backwards and instead of this innovative dynamic we are looking at just the rule of the powerful and that this powerful are relying on all sorts of techniques, and increasingly these techniques are digital, they involve, as I already alluded to, data and platforms and services. So this new regime, it's not just feudal, it's actually techno-feudal, and technology plays a key role in enabling this new anti-innovative tendencies, so to say.
0: This debate on whether we're entering a new feudalist period and leaving capitalism behind, it rests largely or in significant part on how we understand those two terms. And both concepts have been intensively discussed and debated and fiercely debated in Marxism, particularly in the last sixty years or so. So let let's start by defining feudalism and capitalism in Marxist terms and also more specifically in Marx's terms. What what have Marx and various Marxists identified as the key differences? between these two modes of production?
1: Your question already contains an answer, because for Marxists, by and large, both feudalism and capitalism, they are modes of production. So essentially, it's not just some kind of a vague socioeconomic regime. It's not uh, something defined primarily by how much political or social rights you enjoy, of what kind, whether you're dependent on other people, whether you're dependent on law. I mean, there are certain thinkers of the kind of liberal democratic tradition who rely on this more political criteria. For Marxists, the difference between feudalism and capitalism is primarily a difference in the mode of production. And that's kind of one of the epistemic revolutionary break, so to say, that Marxism makes, uh, if you compare it to other traditions uh, in classical economics and economics in general. It basically theorizes this idea that social systems should be understood and compared based on this concept of the mode of production. So if you look at feudalism, essentially we are talking about the way in which the system manages to generate and divide economic surplus, right? And by and large, that's what moral of production is. This is essentially, I mean, I'm not, I, I, maybe it's, it's not the most uh, orthodox of Marxist definitions, but we're essentially talking about the way in which surplus is produced, surplus is divided, and then additional reflections, of course, could be made about how all of that relates to Uh, the broader philosophy of history of some kind. And this is where the exciting part in Marxism and in Marx uh, comes up. Because, of course, Marx makes this argument that uh, while we can see a transition from feudalism to capitalism, it's possible (laughs) that there are certain features within capitalism that would not allow us to develop all this innovative dynamics that... Germinate within it to its maximum because of its social relations of production that, you know, certain classes control certain technologies and they essentially control certain means of production, as, as Marxists would put it. And because of that control, essentially, you cannot achieve the degree of social progress that uh, you would expect of a given state of technology or uh, of of society. And this is why socialism, as the ultimate, and communism then, of course, eventually, as the ultimate mode of production uh, would be necessary. But if you were to go back to feudalism uh, as one of the early modes of production, there the idea is that uh, peasants, and we're talking mostly about peasant economies, uh, we're talking, of course, pre-industrialization, they have, by and large, they either control or have access to their own means of subsistence. By and large, we don't even use the term means of production, even though occasionally it's used, but we are talking mostly about means of subsistence. And they might be tending a field of some kind, or a garden, or a plot of land. Um, and they work on it with some autonomy. And essentially, because of political arrangements, Somebody comes periodically, could be once a month, or so once a year and essentially expropriates or confiscates uh, whatever surplus that they might be producing and uh, would uh, part way with. And that doesn't happen through some kind of uh, backdoor, invisible arrangement. Nobody's being tricked. It's done by force and there is, of course, a political system of power that uh, shapes how that surplus is appropriated. And the critique of this mode of production, one of the critiques of this mode of production, it's not only that it relies on violence and power and politics, but it's also that it essentially keeps a lot of this feudal lords. We can just call them that to simplify things. I mean, there are all sorts of gradations within that system because it also relates to some of the military duties that some of them have to perform, but we don't have to go there right now. But essentially, uh, these Sfuda lords, because of the political power they enjoy, uh, they also enjoy a certain degree of protection. There is no competition between them. And because there is no competition between them, they face very few incentives to actually innovate, to cut costs to introduce labor-saving techniques of some kind, to introduce new technologies. So from the Marxist point of view, very often the system results in some kind of social and economic stagnation because, again, it suppresses this innovative drive um, that uh, exists in society. We can argue and debate, and maybe we'll get there, about how the transition between from feudalism to capitalism happens, but for... Some theorists, and especially Robert Brenner, whom I discuss at length in, in, in that essay have written, capitalism is marked as a mode of production. Capitalism is marked by a very different dynamic. It essentially pits what used to be feudal lords uh, into competition with one another. They can no longer rely on this political subject that they control to confiscate surplus from. Uh, they have to pay them salary or wage, or they have to compensate them in one way or another, that for their labor, it incentivizes them to essentially automate uh, as much of that work as possible. It incentivizes them to cut costs. And because of this innovative behavior stimulated, by the way, of course, through market competition, we end up in a system like capitalism, which is nominated for Brenner by this dynamic of accumulation via innovation. So, capitalism becomes a system that essentially systematizes the production of innovation. And uh, this is how we account for immense advances in economic development uh, over the past two centuries associated with industrialization. So that would be the major difference. I would argue for certain, again, for certain schools uh, of Marxist thinkers, some of them more orthodox than others, it's really this emphasis. On innovation as a structural feature of capitalist competition that really comes out, that comes very strongly in capitalism as compared to the feudalist system before.
0: And to clarify and drill down a little further, what, what is the distinction between the means of surplus extraction under capitalism versus that under feudalism? And how does a certain emphasis on there being a really hard and fast distinction between those two means of surplus extraction How does that, in your view, lead some astray in their analysis of the present political economic order?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, I'm not a historian of feudalism by any means, right? So I'm drawing on secondary literature. So all all I know about the mechanisms and means of surplus extraction uh, under feudalism, I know from the work of marvelous historians of feudalism and capitalism. But essentially... um, Maybe it's easier to start with uh, capitalism and then draw the distinction to feudalism. So, on a traditional Marxist account, of course, it's labor that we have to analyze. And it's the fact that uh, there is something very peculiar about labor as a commodity that accounts for this immense production and circulation of surplus value under the capitalist system. We probably don't have to go and uh, repeat everything that Marx says about exploitation and the way in which uh, surplus value is generated in the, uh, in the work process, but essentially the takeaway from uh, that Marxist analysis is that you know there is uh, something Again, as I said, very peculiar about labor, and it's not like any other commodity. So it's not essentially priced the way it should be priced. And that uh, while you're entering into a contract under normal conditions, like we're not talking about power imbalances where you really need to go and work in a sweatshop, right? We're talking about an industrial factory where you might be entering into a labor agreement or a labor contract of some kind thinking that everything is fair and you're being paid for you know eight hours of your time. Uh, but if you look at the system a little bit deeper structurally from a helicopter view of some kind, you see that there are certain processes built into it that result in uh, labor being exploited and value essentially flowing from labor to capital or from workers to those who own the means of production. But that's not happening. Um, explicitly. Nobody is forcing you, nobody is beating you up, uh, at least under properly working capitalism, right? We're not saying that under capitalism... Sort of ideal types. Exactly. So, you know, in the ideal type, capitalism is clean, right? It's not, it doesn't have to rely on police power, it doesn't have to rely on people starving. Even in completely perfect ideal conditions, uh, the way the capitalist system works is that you essentially go and sell your labor and uh, somehow still as a laborer, by and large, chances are you're somehow being short-charged. We can, of course, argue about the mystifications and mystics and the whole process of how that works. And, you know, there are debates, of course, that are still alive within Marxism, how exactly that happens. uh, But the bottom line is that all of that happens invisibly uh, somehow, but cleanly, right? And it's all legal, it's all clean. You sign up the contract, there is absolutely no formal beating you up on the on the head with some kind of a uh, weapon. Uh, in feudalism, it's the opposite. So, in, 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 in feudalism, this surplus extraction uh, happens quite visibly so. Nobody is in denial about it. You would go and harvest and work in your field and then somebody will come at the end of the month and will either take away your produce or will take away the money that you or some other you know compensation because it was also barter economy of course but they will come and take away whatever is that's left that you have not consumed to reproduce yourself uh, and again that will happen in a much more violent Uh, explicit, visible way. Of course, it could be justified through all sorts of means, could be justified through religious traditions, by appeals to ideology. There are all sorts of ways to justify why that needs to happen. So it doesn't have to be violent all the time. But what backs it up, essentially, is force. Again, I'm not saying that capitalism functions without the state, where there is no force making up the contract. But in capitalism, it all happens uh, was supposed to happen in a much cleaner way where workers are supposed to be convinced that they're not being screwed, that they're actually <laughs> doing everything to the latter.
0: Yeah, you, you argue that that some Marxists believe that we've returned to feudalism because of all this raw political power exercised in recent years and decades to redistribute wealth to the capitalist class. In other words, brazen exercises of expropriation rather than this ideal type of clean exploitation. And you write that this approach, and and these theorists that increasingly focus on political expropriation, quote, See the capitalist system as driven solely by its internal dynamics of competition and exploitation, with political expropriation lying firmly outside its boundaries. On this reading, capital accumulation is driven solely by clean economic means of surplus extraction. The existence of extraneous, expropriation-enabling processes—violence, racism, dispossession, carbonization—is not denied, but they should be analytically bracketed out as non-capitalist extras. They may have abetted particular capitalists in their individual efforts to appropriate surplus value, but they stand outside the process of capitalist accumulation as such. What particular currents of Marxist thought have historically advanced this analysis that that you just summarized? And and what are the examples of political expropriation that they have in mind? And then finally, how does that tradition, in your view, leave Marxists unprepared to comprehend the changes that we're currently seeing in the political economic order today?
1: Well, I would argue that this still is and was and remains the dominant strength and the dominant reputation within Marxism. So if you really look at Orthodox um, Marxism, you know, people who really go and study capital and they treat capital as their primary tax, they don't do deviations into the 18th Brumaire or into Grundrisse or into all of the many other supplementary texts by Marx and Engels, uh, they would still hold on to this position that essentially capitalism is a system that works through and expands through competition and that essentially everything else that happens, it happens so that capitalism can exploit labor more efficiently, effectively and get more of the labor surplus. Um, A lot of Marxists that are even heterodox would also tacitly subscribe to that, even though they would probably deepen uh, the analysis a little bit. So we've seen a lot of emphasis in the last few decades on the importance of social reproduction For example, right? Uh, But for many of them, social reproduction uh, itself—it's kind of almost an essential part of capitalism, right? It's essentially it analyzes what happens outside of the proverbial factory, but with the view of explaining how all this other stuff, like women's work and the family, how all of that essentially makes capital capitalism, in the factory, in the actual sphere of production, a little bit more productive and effective. So I I would say that is, was, and remains the, the mainstream view for Marxists. And anybody who challenges that view, and there is enough evidence, of course, in Marx, that this is precisely what Marx actually meant. Anybody who challenges that view and who doesn't want to assign this role of just supporting elements of labor exploitation to all of these processes you've You've, 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 you've cited from my essay, from carbonization to the work that women do to racial capitalism. To call it capitalism here might be a bit of a stretch, but all of these extraneous factors, if you really want to make them central to the understanding of how capitalism works today, you will be probably excommunicated (laughs) and treated as a post-Marxist at best, as a neo-Marxist potentially, and as a non-Marxist also quite likely. Some people, and I cite them in the piece, of course, some people like Nancy Fraser, for example, uh, they have tried to show how one can stay within the Marxist tradition and still be faithful to this as they would say, probably dialectical process and interaction between exploitation, which is the primary dynamic of capitalism, the way orthodox Marxists see it, and appropriation, which is, of course, for most Marxists, is just purely functional to uh, enable exploitation. And we don't really know what it would mean for Marxists to accept both of these dynamics, uh, as playing an equally important role in the constitution of capitalism, as opposed to appropriation of some kind uh, being just the secondary role to exploitation of labor, which they would see as the still the primary and the dominant and the most important dynamic.
0: You write, quote, The other option, analytically messier, but more intuitively convincing, is to acknowledge that capitalism, at least the historical capitalism that we know, not the purest capitalism of abstract models, is unthinkable without all these extraneous processes. One doesn't have to deny the centrality of exploitation to the capitalist system to see how racism or patriarchy have helped to create the conditions of its possibility." Would the capitalist system in the global north have developed as it did if cheap resources had not been methodically expropriated from the global south? This analysis has, has historically been, been made by many, but above all else perhaps, by world systems theorists like Immanuel Wallerstein. What do such theorists contribute to Marxism and why, why has it been their study of capitalism as a geographically uneven historical and global process? That led them to these particular insights.
1: Well, it really depends. I think on the uh, vantage point uh, from which uh, this analysis is written. I think that for a lot of world system theorists, when they were doing that analysis in the late in, in the late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies, uh, they saw themselves as affiliated uh, to some extent with the efforts of the non-aligned movement, but also of countries, so you can look at, region, at, at, at region-wise, we can look at Latin America, we can look at certain parts of Africa, certain parts of Asia, uh, countries that, in one way or another, we on the periphery of the world system uh, and not at its core, which is where most of the analysis of, of course, Marx, but also subsequent Marxists uh, had focused on before, so most of this theorization of capitalism, of course, happened in the United Kingdom. This is what Marx analyzes. Uh, He analyzes the industrialization process there and how capitalism develops. Um, And he draws a lot of insights, but the problem is that those insights uh, of 19th century and 18th century Britain, they're very hard to apply to 20th century Brazil or 20th century Chile or 20th century Vietnam. Um, and this is where uh, people like Emmanuel Wallerstein, Andre Gunter Frank, uh, Giovanni Arrighi, to some extent uh, Cardozo, the former president of Brazil, uh, and many others, they essentially point out that there are huge gaps in the account that traditional Marxist gives you if you try to think about capitalist development from the perspective of the periphery and not the core. And uh, they're not just making this analysis because they want to because they participate in academic debates, of course many of them do, but they are also involved with many socialist and left-leaning governments in those countries, which was still possible before the neoliberal era or you know the, the military dictatorships in the case of Latin America took over. And they are trying to think about it from a very practical perspective. So who are your allies if uh, you really need to think about some kind of alternative non-capitalist development? Would that be bourgeoisie locally and nationally because you need to first have a capitalist revolution in your country before you can have a socialist one? Or is the bourgeoisie already fully integrated into the world capitalist system and they have their own way of getting by and they're essentially to be discarded as some kind of a revolutionary force? So a lot of these questions and critiques of traditional Marxism and the way of the way traditional Marxism thinks of feudalism and thinks of capitalism, they come from very practical concerns. It's just that these concerns are not necessarily raised by the workers' movement in England or France or Germany or, for that matter, the United States, which is where the thinkers in the core of, of, of the capitalist system, even Marxist thinkers, have traditionally generated the ideas from. Right? And I think we tend to underestimate and underemphasize this aspect that a lot of these critiques, at least originally, they were coming from real concerns. And these real concerns, you know, they problematize certain actors much more so than traditional kind of central, if we were to derive this word from the word center as opposed to periphery, Marxists would emphasize. So if you look at corporations as such, they, with an exception maybe of West India Company, they don't play such a huge role in Marxism. You know, you talk about capital, you talk about finance capital or industrial capital, but corporation as an actor, it's not really a huge thing for Marx. But if you're really trying to think about these matters from the perspective of Latin America, from the perspective of Brazil or Chile, try to think about these issues without incorporating something like ITT or the International Petroleum Company in Peru or uh, you know many of the uh, General Electric in the case of Brazil. It becomes very hard. And it just so happened that you didn't have the resources in traditional Marxism to do that. And world system theory, to some extent, by asking very different questions, it managed also to put certain actors into focus that were not in focus before. And I think quite profitably so.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. It really accounts for the popularity of a variety of different sorts of Marxism in the global South. And just in my personal experience in Latin America, in particular accounts that emphasize expropriation not only world systems theory but rather differently also italian workerist inspired uh, thinkers like silvia federici and marxists like david harvey all all of these figures have a lot of cachet throughout the global south
1: sure but i think you know if you look at it from the perspective of the global south and if you look at it from the perspective of, you know, underdeveloped countries, which was, of course, all the talk was about underdevelopment. That was the standard lingo of uh, the 1960s. Um, they presented the global capitalist system as already, in some sense, dominated by some kind of a rentier dynamic. Um, but for them, the capitalist system, which it, it, it would be so for them it would be very hard to define and describe something that was so modern something that represented industrialization that represented modernity as feudal because for 10 or 15 years from early 1950s to mid 1960s all these countries were told including by the United States government that they have to industrialize and they have to build their own industry. And of course, they try to do that, but then they discovered that just industrializing doesn't mean anything if you don't have your own industry to build capital goods. So if you have to import all your capital goods from abroad, if you have to pay for patents, if you have to pay for royalty fees, if you have to pay for capital and for, for many other things, you essentially end up in a dependent relationship. And because of this dependent relationship, money keeps on flowing to those who not just own capital. I mean, the capital part is easy. So yes, of course, there are dominant groups in the center in North America and in Western Europe who are profiting from this underdeveloped countries. But it even goes to labor. So one of the arguments that a lot of the thinkers in Latin America made at the time was that essentially because trade unions are so much stronger in the global north, that they are so much stronger in Western Europe and in North America, Every time there is a crisis and a downturn, the labor movement in the north doesn't abandon its gains. They hold on to them, and it's the workers in the global south who have to actually suffer and see their wages decline and their kind of pockets suffer. So for them, even the workers in the global north would be part of some kind of a rentier class, right? Which, which it wasn't really a huge issue. I mean, they were not trying to build some kind of a discord between uh, the labor movement, but ultimately this feudal-like rentier dynamic for them was already built into the capitalist, global capitalist system. uh, And it was a normal thing. But again, this is where you need to understand that from a traditional classical Marxist point, things like structuralism, and to some extent even dependency theory in Latin America, they were not properly Marxist because you were talking about countries exploiting each other because some of them were exporting capital goods and um, industrial goods and others were exporting raw materials and foodstuffs and essentially they couldn't, you know, those who were industrialized and were selling equipment, of course, were better positioned than those who were selling bananas, right? So, and there were all sorts of intricate arguments about why this is better and why this is so, but ultimately this is not a Marxist theory. If by Marxist theory you mean a theory that puts exploitation of labor at its core, you cannot start with exploitation of labor as such and arrive directly at the theory of international exploitation of one country exploiting another country, which is precisely what dependency theory and structuralism were are arguing. And then the question becomes, what do you prefer to work with? If you are a socialist government, let's say in Latin America, do you go with a theory that tries to make sense of the international packing order in the global economy? Or do you go with a theory that seems theoretically sound, but doesn't actually have much to say about how your trade policy or industrial policy should look like? And of course, people who... Now, from the Marxist side, look at this debate. They, to some extent, are justified in saying that whatever Wallerstein or others or Gunter Frank say about Marxism is not valid. But I think they fail to understand. And it's not valid within the proper Marxist kind of theoretical edifice. But what they fail to notice is that these people are not trying to reflect on Marxism. They were really trying to reflect on alternative paths of development, for Latin America, Caribbean, Asia, Africa, and so forth. And Marxism was one of the instruments they used, but the point was not to produce the most definitive account of what Marxists should think like. (laughs) Because you can't think about everything armed with a theory of how labor gets exploited. It's just very hard to think about trade armed with that theory. But you can think about other things. And then the question becomes... Is capitalism a concept that you can only think through with this extremely pure, orthodox Marxist understanding of labor being exploited? Or is it also something you can think about historically as the residue of activities of corporations, governments, national security agency, the CIA, the State Department, and all of these actors, which you could never
0: to think about it dialectically.
1: Think about it dialectically, think <laughs> about it historically, and think about it in a way that you would not be able to theorize, but intuitively you feel that if you know the activities of the Rockefellers, both in terms of the corporation and the foundation and the policymakers in Latin America, if that is not capitalism, that something is wrong with our definition of capitalism, right? And I think this is the kind of critique that some of these thinkers who are heterodox Marxists rather than orthodox ones bring to the surface. And there is always this tension and pressure from the orthodox corners to say, to police their territory and essentially to say, no, 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 we don't want that. Write your history box. Don't pollute our analytical frameworks because if you do, we'll lose sight of what makes capitalism tick. And if you lose sight of what makes capitalism tick, we'll never build the socialism we want with even better dynamics that produce innovation. Well, this
0: brings us to this debate over how capitalism operates today, uh, as we've been discussing in so many ways, depends on historical debates among Marxists and amongst critics of capitalism and analysts of capitalism more generally, and particularly these two historical debates over the transition from feudalism to capitalism. First, the Dobbs-Sweezy debate, which began in the 1940s, and then later the Brenner debate of the late 70s and early 80s. Both debates were in part, you write, over, quote, the centrality of primitive accumulation to the origins as well as subsequent developments of capitalism. First, what is primitive accumulation? And then what was at stake in these debates over determining, over determining its role in capitalism, both both historically and in an ongoing manner?
1: So, again, it's a very uh, contentious subject among Marxist and near-Marxist or Marxist-friendly theorists. Uh, Some of that has to do with inconsistency that one finds in Marx's own texts about what primitive accumulation is and what role it had played. And it's a debate, again, that continues to this day with close readings of Marx and uh, debates over footnotes and secondary sources. Again, I don't see myself as a Marxologist of any kind. And uh, you know, I ventured into debate mostly because I thought um, I needed to contextualize the current discussion. But again, my understanding, having spent some time Uh, in that universe, as a tourist, as opposed to (laughs) as a full-time resident. (laughs) uh, It's that, essentially, the debate is as follows. Uh, You have some people reading Marx to be saying that before capitalism acquired this self-propelling, self-fulfilling, innovative uh, dynamic, whereby competition forces capitalists to cut costs and invent new things, Of course, they had to engage in a certain initial, much messier and violent process of capital accumulation, and that required very different set of tools, techniques, and means, if you will. Um, And that was kind of like feudalism. You wouldn't even recognize it from feudalism if it did not lead to this much cleaner, systematic, Uh, innovative dynamic that doesn't need to be violent, right? So it's essentially some miracle happens. I mean, of course, there are ways in which Marxists will tell you how exactly that happens, but it's essentially a story of a miracle where the traditional bloody, violent, feudal dynamics eventually give rise to this proper, non-primitive accumulation, much more sophisticated accumulation, right? And of
0: course- Exhibit A is enclosure.
1: Exactly, yes. So, you can think about enclosures of land and of property, and that, of course, initially is very violent, uh, and there are a lot of people, of course, who are unhappy about it, but eventually everybody accepts that, and you start having, uh, in some cases, uh, market players' trade and rights to land, to means of production, to ideas, and everything becomes essentially a commodity of some kind, and we know that commodities are traded in the market, and it's all very clean and proper. There are, and I must say that, of course, Marx wrote about these things in German, and often when he was referring to concepts like primitive accumulation, he was actually discussing the work and the thought of other people, including Adam Smith, Uh, Occasionally, you'll see terms like so-called attached to the term primitive accumulation. So, there is also some debate as to whether Marx actually gave that much primacy and importance to this term to begin with. But the alternative reading of primitive accumulation would be to say that Marx did not actually mean to delineate it as some kind of a historical stage after which capitalism is supposed to work frictionlessly perfectly in a clean way without recourse to violence blood. Uh, and that this secondary dynamic where you have to rely on force and an expropriation or appropriation of some kind, it's ongoing. So it did not end uh, centuries ago. It's still with us. Maybe it's less visible. Maybe we don't recognize it as capitalism proper, but it's there. And essentially, it makes an essential counterpart, if you will, to the widely recognizable exploitation-driven dynamic of uh, accumulation.
0: I mean, just to point out the two Marx quotes that point in sort of different interpretive directions, not necessarily contradictory, but to point towards different interpretations. On the one hand, he pointed to more of a historical moment, quote, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement and entombment in mines of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist accumulation. These idyllic proceedings are the chief momenta of primitive accumulation. But but on the other hand, he wrote, quote, the veiled slavery of the wage workers in Europe needed for its pedestal, slavery, pure and simple in the new world, which which suggests a more permanent relationship between expropriation in the periphery and exploitation in the core. And you could make that not only a matter of global core versus periphery, but you could map that on to various Levels and scales of core and periphery, you know both within from from within a nation to within a metropolitan area.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if if that's where you were getting historically, but of course, some thinkers like David Harvey, of course uh, introduce yet another actor into the onto the scene, so to say, and they point to neoliberalism which they then define as something that is marked by the rise of accumulation by dispossession, right? And for uh, Harvey, to some extent, it's an elegant, theoretical way of saying that primitive accumulation is ongoing, but for theoretical reasons, he thinks uh, if it's uh, ongoing, why call it primitive? But since he also grasps having read his Marx really well he grasps that the primary dynamic of capitalism is that of innovation whatever its costs are I mean, innovation it's there and most marxists would recognize it as such neoliberalism as a rather ill-defined concept that you of course would never encounter in marx's works uh, as such it comes to perform this very interesting function which allows many academics and followers of David Harvey to essentially recognize that there is this redistributive dynamic inside the capitalist system, which results in the poor having their money or resources or income channeled to the rich, but not through exploitation. It happens through... Other means. It happens through rent, it happens through austerity imposed on them, it happens through mechanisms, it happens through IP. I mean, if you go through some of David Harvey's early books where he theorizes it, he gives you very long lists which really span every single technique of making money in the world at the time, which do not not rely on classical exploitation of labor and the conditions of, you know, wage labor, essentially, in some factory, for example. Um, And it kind of allows, I think, a lot of academics to operate and talk about capitalism and some of the perverse dynamics that they see in it Mostly from the perspective of the global north, because the global south has its own way to account for it through dependency theory and through structuralism and other, and other similar frameworks. So it allows certain strands of leftist, Marxist, neo Marxist academia in, in, in the global north to essentially account for this without having to bring in and introduce a term. Like neo feudalism or techno feudalism, because neoliberalism comes to perform that function. You can essentially blame all the lack of dynamism and innovation that you would normally associate with a capitalist system on neoliberalism. And it's, in a sense, of course, you know, you'll see, maybe we are getting there anyway, you see how strange and bizarre this argument is because. I mean, it's bizarre, but it's also not bizarre because ultimately it does what Marx does in his own work. It pays this hidden compliments to capitalism as this extremely dynamic system that revolutionizes social relations, that generates innovation, but is just unable, it can't take it to the next level, <laughs> to put it in very banal terms. And to take it to the next level, you need a different mode of production, which is socialism. And... Uh, By putting all this blame on neoliberalism, it kind of gives this illusion that once we move into a post-neoliberal era of some kind, maybe we'll recover capitalism and maybe from there we'll also move on to socialism. I don't think that a lot of people who use accumulation by dispossession see these implications necessarily, but if you want to be theoretically coherent and logically coherent, I think you must see them, that essentially... You are subscribing to that relatively charitable view of capitalism as a progressive, innovative social system that just runs into certain limits because of class relations.
0: Yeah, this emphasis on what is new about capitalism that's entailed by talking about neoliberalism all the time has sort of overshadowed what's the same about capitalism. And so we hear neoliberalism a lot more than we just hear plain old capitalism.
1: Yeah, and I think it's correct. And it, 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 but, but again, I think it's just so useful to be thinking about these issues, keeping Global South and this prehistory of dependency theory and structuralism in mind, because if you really put them on your intellectual map, then the account of neoliberalism that Harvey gives you, of it starting in New York in the 1970s with the fiscal crisis, and then with Chile and everything else... It's very hard to actually reconcile that with the fact that Latin American economists would already tell you that the global capitalist system has this rentier-like, redistributive, dispossession-like dynamics in the 50s and 60s, way before the Chicago boys arrive in Chile and neoliberalism begins. I mean, the reason why they have to arrive in Chile is because Ayende wants to get Chile away from the path on which it is. But it's on the capitalist path. It's not on the neoliberal path. And it's within capitalism itself, from the perspective of the global south, that you have this very bizarre, peculiar dynamics, which you cannot just describe if you use Marxist philosophy of history and modes of production and nothing else.
0: Yeah. And, and as we've discussed, you argue that when scholars don't account for the insights of, say, world systems theorists and don't leave enough room for primitive accumulation or expropriation in their definition of capitalism, that that leaves these analysts vulnerable in the face of such, say, such brazen uses of state power after the 2008 financial crisis or, again, during the pandemic to, to, to redistribute wealth to capitalist class and stabilize the system, that that leaves these analysts vulnerable to believing that we no longer live under capitalism at all and and you argue that in doing so Brenner has ironically converged with Harvey's analysis of accumulation by dispossession having become the dominant form of capitalist accumulation because and that's ironic you write because Brenner was initially a staunch critic of Harvey precisely on the grounds that Harvey overemphasized expropriation over exploitation as the means for securing the surplus under capitalism
1: Sure. Well, I mean, look, to some extent, this is all inside baseball of people who write for New Left Review, right? It's not... I mean, I mean. of course, I'm minimizing the importance. I mean, they're very big, important Marxist thinkers, and a lot of people reference them. And it's true, of course, that Robert Brenner wrote a very critical review of one of David Harvey's books, I think, on imperialism, where he did say that a concept like accumulation by dispossession makes very little sense. But again, faced with the evidence that Brenner himself has been looking at with regards to the U.S. economy, it's very hard for him to reach a conclusion other than innovation is not to be seen to the same extent, or this dynamic of innovation is not to be seen to the same extent that he could see it in, I don't know, 17th century England somehow. Uh, but again, a lot of it comes from having a very partial view, of the argue, and this is why and a very partial view also of what constitutes innovation and what role the technology companies and big tech and digital platform play in all of this. Because, yes, of course, you can look at absolute investment figures. You can look, I mean, there are ways in which you can measure how much capital is being invested in capital goods, how much of it is just consumed on luxury goods. I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which you can get an estimate of, what capitalists think about the future and how likely they are to remain capitalists. So, I mean, you can, of course, make certain guesses and projections from it. But I would still argue that this debate, as it has been carried out in the global north, it again lost sight of technology, and which wasn't at all the case with dependency theory and with structuralism because of their own peculiar industrialization needs. They knew that essentially if you are buying some advanced tractor or some advanced mining equipment from the United States, uh, you will have to pay fees for using it and you won't be able to just build it in-house because then you'll need to pay royalty fees, you will need to pay for trademarks. Technology was very visceral and physically, explicitly present in the minds of people who were theorizing these issues from the perspective of the Global South. From the perspective of Global North, I think that didn't happen. And somehow, they kept reflecting on technology as if um, they related to it uh, the way Marx would relate to it. It was 19th century British factories somehow automating production. And I think because of that, they had a relatively hard time making sense of what we might also call the information economy or the data economy. So it's just very hard to make sense of Google and what it does. It's very hard to make sense of Facebook, Amazon, and all these other actors. And it's also very hard to understand to what extent they are harming or hurting the global economy as such. Are they just building new enclosures? Are they providing services that other companies that are non-tech companies can actually use to cut costs or to automate? Uh, how do you relate to them? Is the fact that they're not employing any labor, is it good or bad for capitalism? I mean, all these questions, I don't think they've been adequately answered by the orthodox core of Marxism. They've been somewhat tackled by other traditions, even in the global north, if you look at the Italian and French tradition, which I also discuss in the essay, uh, autonomous Marxists and so forth, they've tried to do that, some successfully, some less so, but the core of this theory, I think it has just failed to catch up with where technology was going
0: yeah before before we get to the Italian and French theorists, what you're saying now is really interesting and I just want to highlight it that the problem is viewed from the left in the global south has for a long time been all about the structural inability to import sufficient capital goods while dependent on raw material exports and that you're saying sensitized global south scholars to the role played by technology in a way that didn't happen in the north is that right
1: yeah, yeah I would say that but again it's not I would say that it's not just about exporting capital goods, which is an important part of it, but also trying to make their own technologies. Right. Right. And and this is where if you start analyzing even certain projects that we know and now celebrate on the left, including things like Project Cybersyn in Chile, you can give it a very different spin if you see it as a domestic effort to build a management system or information management system that would not be a system supplied to by IBM or McKinsey. Uh, but it would actually be mostly built by Chileans in Chile, even if they would bring some foreign consultants. But because their needs, technological needs, were real, they also managed to theorize uh, technological dependence much better. So if you read this text, and I've been going through it for a different reason, from late 1960s, early 1970s, even people like Cardozo, who later, of course, would never be accused of being too radical, even they arrive at an insight that, dependence today in the global capitalist economy across countries is primarily technological. And you see it already stated explicitly in late 1960s. And I feel that theorists in the global north, because they don't really think about it from this south versus north paradigm, because they don't have to in most cases, they never arrive at this insight even by 2022. Because they don't have to think about technological dependence because it's not really very important for them. Right? They're still thinking primarily, justifiably or not so, about advancing the interests of the working class in the global north.
0: And, and I don't want to take us down a really deep rabbit hole, but this goes a long way toward explaining what China is up to as well in the conflict between the U.S. and China.
1: Oh, sure. No, for me, it's obvious that the people who really implemented the program that Latin America prepared in the 60s uh, are the Chinese, sure. I mean, it's not, again, to denigrate the Chinese. They had their own autonomous tradition about thinking about technology and science, and they managed to industrialize by relying on this uh, low-cost, labor-intensive technologies, which, again, was very different from what the Global North was suggesting, which was all about automation, uh, because... That's what Global North wants to do. They build technologies to save labor, and then they export those technologies to the Global South. But in the Global South, you don't have the problem of expensive labor. You want to make jobs and you want to provide jobs. So you don't want this northern technologies that save labor. You want the opposite. We want technologies that create labor. And I think Chinese understood this lessons very early on, uh, not necessarily only by engaging with Latin America, Thinking and a lot of it came from China itself, but I'm absolutely convinced that certain regions of the world, because they were forced to think about these issues, they also managed to get a much better account of technology and what it does into the global economy than most of the Marxist theorists living in the global north.
0: As you mentioned a few minutes back, you write about a group of quote Italian and French theorists who prophesize the emergence of cognitive capitalism, yet another capitalism in name only. Inspired by the work of Tony Negri and other Italian operistas, these thinkers insist that the multitude, the successor to the working class, armed with the latest information technologies, is finally capable of autonomous existence. First, let's cover some definitional basics. Who, who were the operistas? Who are the autonomous? What have they argued? And what sort of theorists are following in their footsteps today?
1: I feel like I have to do a crash course here on all the various strands of Marxist thought uh, from the development theory to uh, to dependency theory to, to autonomous Marxist, but I'll do my best. So essentially, um, you have a movement, that intellectual movement, that is partly driven by real needs, uh, theoretical and practical needs of workers, mostly in the Italian north, uh, emerging in the industrial clusters around Turin, around Milan, in the mid to late 1960s, early 1970s, um, they have a very uneasy relationship with the Communist Party. Um, They think that uh, it's too bureaucratic. They think they, they, they have certain doubts about the Soviet Union, but they also have certain doubts about the validity of certain... For overemphasis on certain parts of Marx and underemphasis on other parts. So many of them essentially is especially people like Mario Tronti, who really starts all of this. He's still alive, he's 90-something years old. Uh, Tronti essentially has this Copernican revolution in his mind in the late 1960s, and he basically argues that. Well, we tend to think that it's labor that always adapts to uh, capital, but it's actually the other way around. The workers are the primary driver of this conflict, and it's the workers who push capital around and not the other way around. And essentially, from there emerges this idea of workerism, right, that essentially by putting the worker, and again, I'm simplifying and jumping over all sorts of uh, nuances here, but from here emerges this uh, school of thought, which Tony Negri and others then developed. Toronti himself gets disappointed in this approach and joins, I think, the Communist Party, and now he's a senator for for a very long time in Italy. But essentially what comes out of this uh, school of thought is that workers lead, and capital follows, and that workers have a much broader repertoire of action available to them, and uh, they can refuse to work, and that will sabotage capital, I mean, all sorts of insights and practical advice and strategies uh, come out of that. But there is also this very interesting idea that people like Tronti, Negri and others introduce, and it's this idea of the uh, social factory. And, of course, it's an attempt to explain how things that happen outside of the factory as we know it are essential to the functioning uh, of of capitalism. So they start looking at what happens in, and, you know, a lot of it comes out from actually even though they wouldn't acknowledge it directly, a lot of it comes out from Gramsci's earlier writings about Americanization, how Gramsci was analyzing cities that Ford was building in America and how essentially capitalism was not just um, an economic system but was almost a civilization of some kind. It was transforming how we lived, how we structured our family relations, the roles that women played uh, in uh, making sure that the system could advance uh, and carry forward. But essentially what emerges from that strand of thought, partly it's this idea that as work becomes digital, it makes workers engage in higher level cognitive functions of some kind. And it also allows them to communicate with each other. And unlike Taylorism, which was the system where workers were under heavy surveillance and control and knowledge was extracted from them and they couldn't really relate to each other and they couldn't engage in any kind of joint activism, Uh, this new information type of work actually contains seeds of emancipation within it. And that if only we could accelerate somehow and um, deepen it, Maybe by getting people away from offices, having them go to co-working spaces, maybe even by having them become precarious, to some extent, by precarious, I mean working outside of the traditional wage relationship in a factory or an office, but supplemented with some kind of basic income, we are actually moving closer to liberation. So there is this certain fetishization, if you will, of this digital turn in society and in capitalism that comes from operaismo and autonomism because the assumption is that, oh, it's so much better than Taylorist work in a factory. But having built up this theoretical apparatus that promises emancipation from digitalization, autonomists, especially in the name and in the face of people like Carlo Vercellone, who's an Italian theorist who coins this term cognitive capitalism, to some extent, Maurizio Lazzarato and others are also making similar claims early on, at least later they would distance themselves from this uh, from these approaches. They essentially say, look, we are almost liberated and emancipated. Just give us some basic income and then we'll all be happy. But something else happens, new types of dependencies reemerge. And they emerge because we are tied to certain tools, we are tied to proprietary software, we are tied to these co-working spaces, we don't own our ideas, we don't own um, the software which we used to generate those ideas, we don't own television, we don't own YouTube. Essentially, this informational infrastructures, because of copyright, because of IP laws, international property laws, because all of the software control mechanisms they reestablish something like, they wouldn't say feudalism, they would use this transitory stage called the putting out system in Marx. We don't need to go there, but the idea is that essentially you become independent almost, you work for somebody, and that somebody then just comes and takes things away from you. But you no longer work in the field, You you work in a factory or in an office or in a hipster cafe, right? And these people then use this insight theorize our current digital economy, and they argue that essentially we are living in this cognitive capitalism, which is, that's what I mean when I say that it's capitalist and name only, because ultimately the dynamic at its heart, it's kind of feudal, meaning that we are left to our own devices, we're emancipated, we are given the space to roam free, and a lot of it is really theorization of the most advanced sectors of the precarious creative class in Italy. I mean, you go and try to sell that theory to somebody in In Shenzhen? <laughs> well, in Shenzhen or like, it's, I'm just saying that if you go and try to sell it to somebody in like, I don't know, in Nigeria or in Vietnam or in Kiev right. before the war, maybe Kyiv might be an exception, but like they would have a hard time relating to it as a theory that explains what actually happens outside of hipster cafes which is not to dismiss hipster cafes as an important source of creative and innovative ideas, but its ability to explain capitalism is partial. It's not
0: the median human experience. It's, it's very
1: partial as, <laughs> as a theory of capitalism. But so is, you know, a lot of theories of financialization are also partial because unless you own real estate or stocks, they are relevant for you, right? So a lot of this capitalism, I call it capitalism with adjectives. You know, we're just put like surveillance capitalism, financial capitalism, cognitive capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, you can qualify it, but they're meant to be partial. So cognitive capitalism is meant to be partial, just that it's not obvious to me that uh, their description of this digital infrastructural platforms as rentiers, because everything here revolves around the idea of rent, which I didn't mention. So you really think that these are just passive rentiers who are living off the creative, the the general intellect, that's the other buzzword that uh, everybody in this uh, Italian circle loves, because they, having discovered a certain rather long uh, and somewhat tedious passage in the Grundrisse, they really think that it's key to understanding uh, the contemporary situation, because there Marx talks about the general intellect, which is more than just the sum of individual parts of, you know, all of our little brains and intellects. So it's really the hive mind, as we would say today, if you were to use the the language of Silicon Valley. And they would point to things like Wikipedia, like open source software, and they would say, look, the general intellect, once it's given free roam and free reign of some kind, it builds its own tools. And it manages to create this non-proprietary, non-commodity public goods, essentially. But because of the dominance of these rentiers that become parasitic, parasitic is another watchword in in this space, that become parasitic on the activity of the general intellect, and here we will think about Facebook, that just what do they do for cognitive theory, cognitive capitalist theories? They don't do anything. It's just a firm that steps in and cannibalizes and free rides on existing social relationships and then just find a way to insert a net into a friendship. <laughs> right? So this is the way in which they would explain something like Facebook. They would explain Google along similar lines uh, as, again, something that's extremely parasitic and just lives off interlinking behavior that exists across websites. And it's from this interlinking behavior that they build page rank, which then tells you where every site should fit in in Google search results. And it's from there that they present this picture of capitalism as completely parasitic, uh, driven by this information rentiers, and essentially in need of revolution of some kind where the multitude takes control of its own information tools, and instead of YouTube, we get indie media, and instead of Google, we get Wikipedia, and instead of, uh, I don't know, proprietary software, we get open source or free software, right? So that's the kind of comparing and revolution that they're looking for.
0: Right. if Because if the cutting edge of capital accumulation is not happening in production, which bracketing like what, but is actually done through the extraction of various rents, then for them, that opens the door to a a sort of syndicalist exit from capitalism. If everyone just refuses to stop paying that rent to the parasites, Uh, a possibility of almost transcending the mode of production entirely.
1: Yes. But again, just a quick comment here. I mean, I'm in Italy right now. Obviously, I have some connection and relation and respect for these people, also for all sorts of family reasons, because I'm married to an Italian. But apart from that, um, I just have to emphasize that ultimately their perspective on capitalism uh, remains tied to the experiences of the Italian working class, and particularly the segments to which they were traditionally attached, which happened to be just overly intellectualized. Uh, so as production shifts from Italy to, let's say, I don't know, Vietnam, It's not that Italian theories of cognitive capitalism follow that factory to Vietnam and then theorize the experience of Vietnamese workers. They just analyze the experience of the children of the people who lost their jobs in that factory in Turin, and they look at them and they see them as either trading real estate or becoming creative hipsters. And it's from that national context that they build a theory of cognitive capitalism. And I just think it's a mistake because it ultimately misses the fact that capitalism was never a national system, and it will never be one, and if you really want to build a theory of it, you really need to be able to account for what happens beyond particular segments of the working class in the global north. And of course, some of them, like Tony Negri, they would sidestep these critiques by saying that, well, why should we think in terms of class anyway? We need to start thinking in terms of the multitude, and the multitude is everywhere, and they will find ways to answer these critiques. But at the end of the day, if you look at what kind of praxis informs their theories, it's not praxis tied to the multitude, for the most part. You know, Michael Hart, maybe being in the US and traveling a bit more, has a more cosmopolitan position, and he's the co-author of Tony Negri. But for the majority of the Italian thinkers, the practice just happens to be practices of people who did remain in Milan, Turin, and Rome, and now they just work in the information industries, if they work at all.
0: As we were just discussing, a lot of this literature focuses specifically on the rents extracted by new tech conglomerates. Yet, yet in fact, technology companies spend a lot of money on research and development, classic forms of investment that would indicate that they're behaving like a typical capitalist firm. You write, quote, If the tech giants really are lazy rentiers who are ripping everyone off by exploiting intellectual property rights and network effects, why do they invest so much money in what can only be described as production of some kind? What kind of rentiers do that? Alphabet's R&D spending in 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020 was $16.6 billion, $21.4 billion, $26 billion, and $27.5 billion, respectively. Does that not count as lifting a finger? And then you also note that Amazon alone employs more people than the entire U.S. residential construction industry, that Google, Amazon, and Facebook require a vast physical infrastructure, how does all that good old-fashioned materiality get mystified? Why is it important to understand Google not merely or even primarily as a landlord and more as a traditional capitalist firm? And why why do theorists of neo-feudalism look at some of these R&D budgets or vast physical infrastructure? Why, when they look at them, are they so unmoved?
1: Well, there is a lot (laughs) to unpack here, as they say. So, as as I think I've indicated in in my previous answers, I I don't think that there is a very strong account of the firm, of the corporation in traditional Marxist theory. Uh, I mean, Marxism is not supposed to be a, a theory of the firm, and it doesn't really give you a set of criteria for differentiating some firms that are capitalist, from other actors that are feudal. In in Marxism, of course, it's the unit of analysis. It's capital. It's a social relation. It's not necessarily this firm or that firm. Uh, So even to speak of firms uh, as being feudal or capitalist, but then, again, the orthodox tradition is a bit strange. Uh, So... Most of the attribution that happens now is, of course, it flows first from identifying the dominant mode of production, which would be either capitalist or feudalist. And then from there, you make the attribution and say, well, the main actors in this mode of production have no choice but to be either feudal, if they're talking about feudalism, a capitalist in the case of capitalism. I think a lot of it is semantics, to be honest. But we can't do without it because people are making these claims and they are making this arguments. So I have to go and unpick them, understanding that even within Marxism, talking about firms as being capitalist or feudal, it's not particularly useful. So if we start from this very vulgar, banal characterization of the current era as neo-techno-feudal, then, of course, you have to assume that its main voices or its main enactors or enablers must themselves be somehow futile. And what other conclusions can we draw from it? I mean, you do have to imagine that these are exactly the kind of parasites that the likes of Italian autonomists are painting. So these are people, by and large, or companies for that matter, that have managed to grab some important chunk of the general intellect for themselves they have managed to enact some kind of information enclosure around it and they're just behaving the way such a monopoly would behave so they're just resting on the laurels they're not investing into anything and they're just there deriving rents and all I tried to do in the essay was to say that if we do stick to this... Well, that's not all I tried to do, but one of the things I tried to do in the essay was to show that the numbers and the behavior of these firms as firms, if you look at the technology sector, it just doesn't confirm to that stereotype that you would expect from the main representatives of this new feudal economy that it's here is describing, and that they look much more as representatives of capitalism. There is, of course, a less vulgar version of it, which I discuss later in the essay. Maybe we'll get there, the version of Cédric Durand, the French economist, Marxist economist and thinker who has a more nuanced take on it, and he doesn't subscribe to this vulgar kind of equation between a mode of production and then all its firms being that. So he almost arrives at this middle ground where... The firms can be kind of capitalist and invest and expand and have all sorts of behaviors you would associate with a typical capitalist firm. Uh, but at the same time, the net result of the activities on the economy is to some extent equivalent to what you would expect from feudal electors, or from it being a feudal economy. So essentially it's a huge tax on innovation and overall the dynamic, it's not favorable to the kind of accumulation through innovation that theorists like Robert Brenner associate with capitalism.
0: Why do people see rentierism everywhere and then contend that this is the end of capitalism? Why, why is monopolization leading to a decline or in some areas the elimination of competition deemed to be something new about capitalism? Monopoly, of course has a very long history in capitalism. Lenin and others famously identified monopoly capital as leading to World War I. Why, why this idea that it's novel?
1: Um, I don't think that necessarily the argument is that it's novel, uh, but the argument, and I think the reason why it's so popular, it has to do with the fact that at the end of the day, it's a moral critique. It's, it's, and it's a moral critique you would normally expect from the right rather than from the left, it's the kind of critique that basically tells this former capitalists that they need to work harder, that they need to stop resting on their laurels, and they need to essentially become the good old capitalists they used to be. And again, I understand this critique coming from the neoliberal right, and from the people who do love capitalism. It's a very strange position for the left to take. And my hunch and guess, and I haven't done a thorough study of every single paper written on techno neo-feudalism, although I have looked at quite a few of them. My hunch is that a, a lot of it uh, kind of masks the inability to actually make sense of contemporary capitalism and or to make any kind of propositions uh, in terms of what the actual agenda of the left should be for uh, a different system, for a different mode of production, or for a different society. So we end up essentially saying that we can maybe rebuild some kind of welfare capitalism that we once had. And we just need to make sure that capitalists go back to being these responsible actors that they once were. And maybe once we get that going, we will actually return to the good old days. And again, it's... It's just so strange to be hearing these positions or these conclusions, which is, you know, you have to push these arguments to the ultimate conclusions, and this is what these conclusions are. It's just so hard to be hearing them coming from the left.
0: You argue that the most popular versions of this analysis, of the appropriation of user-produced data by tech companies, namely that put forward by Shoshana, Shoshana, Shoshana Zuboff in, in the book Surveillance Capitalism, that they're wrong to consider the dispossession of our data as the source of, of corporate profits. Zuboff, you write, quote, cannot imagine that human experience congealed in data that is appropriated from the user at the point of contact with digital artifacts is not the principal driver behind Google's exorbitant profits. Where then do Google's enormous profits come from? And what is it, as you've alluded to, what is it about the digital economy that makes it so is so inscrutable to so many?
1: So... Um, if you look at Sujana Zuboff's work on surveillance capitalism, to some extent, if you read that book, it's a very long book, uh, if, if you read it carefully, you will see clearly that while the style of its prose, it's clearly inspired by the turgid prose of Max Weber, its analytical framework is clearly that of Marx's capital. So, essentially... What Zubov is arguing and proposing, to some extent, is that just like traditional capitalism relies on the exploitation of labor without compensating workers what they should be paid, this new surveillance capitalism relies on the exploitation of user data. And it's by exploiting user data that this enormous riches are made. And to some extent, the Italian autonomists and post reach somewhat similar conclusions, even though their accounts are much more nuanced. But way before Zuboff, they arrived at terms like digital labor and so forth. But they problematized the labor part much more than Zuboff. Zuboff actually would tell you that, well, while the book itself is a little bit like Marx's capital, she herself wouldn't draw the analogy between labor and data, because for her it would be very vulgar. So she would say, well, our data are more like natural resources. So she would kind of strangle both worlds. It would be both a little bit human stuff. So it might be like labor, but it's actually not because our data is like natural resources. So they are extracting it from us the way capitalists are extracting it, oil from the ground. So forth. If you look at the argument a little bit closer, you see that Zuboff never really tells you how come you cannot have other ways for these companies to make money, and how come she doesn't account for any alternative explanations for the immense profits that these companies make. In Marx's case, at least the framework focused on labor is theoretically coherent because it's one way, you know, looking at everything through a theory of value, uh, labor theory of value, which again, we can get into a very long debate as to how Marx exactly does it, but essentially for Marx, looking at the global economy through the perspective of a theory of value that is grounded in labor, it's a way of understanding what's going on both from the perspective of labor, the workers, and also from the perspective of capital, right? So it's the only way that allows Marx to see both sides of the story uh, and not always reconcile them very well. And this is where all of the Marxist debates that never end about the transformation program start and end. It's basically how do you reconcile the vantage point of labor and the vantage point of capital, right? And how do you bring them into equivalence of some kind and whether it's actually possible and whether it must be done and whether it needs to be done numerically or not, you know, this occupies Marxists for centuries and probably will occupy uh, for, for just as long. In the case of Zuboff, of course, there is no even an attempt to build any kind of mathematics behind the theory. So you basically told, well, Google, It sits on a lot of data, so what else can account for all its riches? And I just think that this is a very naive way to think about it because, again, it assumes that what Google does primarily is sell ads. And to some extent, and of course, they also sell other services, but Zuboff doesn't much bother looking at cloud computing and AI and all the other things they sell. But even if you just stick to search... Clearly, selling ads is important, but Google wouldn't be able to sell ads unless it managed to make what, in the essay, I describe as a search commodity. Essentially, the reason why these ads are possible is because there is a system somewhere inside Google servers that manages to, on the fly, generate search results at a minimum cost if every search result was priced differently if every, you know, you go and type for weather in New York and it generates an answer and it also generates 5,000 pages of an answer. Correct. And imagine if that cost $1,000 or $100,000 to generate and to show because you had to pay every single website whom you index that amount of money. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you would be able to sell 5 ads, 10 ads, 25 ads against those search results. It would just be economically unviable. And it would be economically unviable because the cost of offering that service would be disproportionately larger than the revenue you're making. And clearly, if you really want to understand why Google is profitable, you also have to understand by what kind of magic trick they manage to convince everybody whose content they're indexing that that content is worth nothing and that they should not be fighting against it. Subov never even attempts to explain it properly and she just disregards the fact that indexing could have costed something and that there is something peculiar in Google's business model that accounts for the peculiar search commodity that they make. And then you can start building all sorts of theories why they managed to do that. Maybe it's the power of Stanford. Maybe it's the power of military industrial complex. Maybe it's the power of venture capital. Maybe it's the power of America that stands behind Google. Maybe NSA wanted it this way. I mean, who knows? You can build all sorts of theories how that came about, but you need to have a theory that explains that. And an account that just focuses on extraction of data, to me it's the kind of account that prioritizes the human user because ultimately that's where the data comes from and it suffers from this very bizarre form of humanism which almost abandons any ability to talk about business models of these firms that don't involve humans because again there is a certain strange assumption built into a lot of these critiques that somehow firms that don't employ labor and that are fully automated or that are nearly automated are not capitalist firms because they themselves are not directly exploiting anybody. But this is not what Marx says. It's not, again, correct to be analyzing a mode of production at the level of the firm. You have to be analyzing it holistically. And, of course, it's possible that a firm that doesn't employ anybody is just a rentier because it happens to own copyright to something or it happens to own a patent to an important drug. And we've seen many of such firms and there are plenty of hedge funds that do that. But it doesn't have to be the only solution. You can also have firms that actually own and invest and expand their pretty sophisticated infrastructures. They produce something and in producing that thing they actually engage in all the normal capitalist activities they are supposed to be engaging in. And uh, it doesn't mean that the system is not capitalist. It just means that somebody, according to Marx and traditional Marxists, is actually being exploited somewhere else. And part of the surplus value generated in that place, through exploitation of labor, is eventually channeled to these fully automated firms. But it doesn't make the system any less capitalist, and I feel that people like Zuboff—they just cannot. It's not she doesn't even engage with Marxist theory, but somehow a lot of these people who are then inspired by her, they have this terrifying fear that if they manage to imagine a digital economy that doesn't directly interact with users, somehow it will not be capitalist because. You know, no user data changes hands. And I just find it so strange, bizarre and completely antithetical to what Marx was actually telling us about automation and how it's in the natural DNA, so to say, of capital to seek reduction of costs, which means eventually automation. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are
0: listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com. And by Phenomenal World, a publication run out of the Jane Family Institute that puts out rigorous and clarifying research and writing to help you understand the complexities of the global political economy. Phenomenal World has featured many excellent dig guests like Tim Barker, Melinda Cooper, Femi Taiwo, Daniela Gabor, and Isabella Weber. If you're looking for deep analysis of things like the politics of monetary policy, the relationship between financial capital and development in the global south, how organized labor lost to the construction industry, how the IMF is making it hard for poor countries to decarbonize, the way U.S. dollar hegemony shapes global politics, and so much more, visit phenomenalworld.org and subscribe to get their original articles and their weekly newsletters of relevant research and writing. That's phenomenalworld.org. Head there to read and subscribe. I'm ad-libbing this into the ad, but so you know, it is a really good publication, and I will put a link in the show notes. In a New Left Review essay by Timothy Eric Strom, it was in part a response to your essay, um recently published in NLR, he writes, quote, Google's build out of communication information infrastructure has radically expanded the digital realm, creating exponential quantities of data to manage and therefore to command. It is propelled not only by the capitalist drive for profit, but also by an intrinsic logic of cybernetic expansion. And he also writes that the very same financial firms backing the big five tech companies, have also themselves, quote, been radically reorganized by cybernetic processes, which play a central role in the control and allocation of capital. And he agrees with you that we are indeed still in capitalism, not in feudalism. But he argues that that recognizing the current manifestation of, of capitalism as what he calls cybernetic capitalism has the advantage of placing a, quote, more expansive mode of practice framing over the more usual mode of production, which acknowledges the importance of other practices besides producing goods, communications, exchange, inquiry, consumption, and organization, with each aspect of these having economic, political, cultural, and ecological components. What this recognizes, he argues, is that beginning with the Cold War state, quote, techno-scientific projects would move beyond the conquest of nature— the dream of the early modern scientific revolution, to aim at its reconstitution, the reorganization of social life at a higher level of abstraction. Thus, if capitalist modernity was more abstract than the various feudal and customary societies it displaced, the cybernetic transformation would take this to another stage. You've worked extensively on cybernetics. First, just what is cybernetics? And then what do you make of his argument?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, cybernetics is an intellectual movement, uh, if you think about it historically, that emerges um, immediately after the end of the Second World War. And it's a movement that spans several different disciplines, uh, engineering, uh, to some extent biology, uh, neurophysiology, anthropology, sociology, even political science. And uh, what brings together all these disciplines in dialogue is the role and attention that they play to that they pay to certain concepts like feedback, like the idea that causality it's not uh, linear, it's not just A causing B, but that it's also B then reflecting on A and maybe reflecting on C and then C reflecting back on A and B altogether. So it's um, a way to think about complex processes that very often feed onto each other, which allows many of these thinkers to draw parallels uh, between things that normally are not thought through together, or at least they were not thought through together before. So you can start building analogies between brains, for example, and machines, or computers, you can start building analogies between biological processes and animals, for example, and humans, humans and economies, economies and uh, machines. So everything becomes comparable to everything else, because you can look at it with a lot of simplifications as a series of feedback loops and mechanisms, communication processes, causal mechanisms, and so forth. And of course, it becomes uh, very fruitful for various domains, it, uh, I would argue, provides the ground intellectually, out of which um, artificial intelligence eventually emerges. It allows to conceptualize uh, many different processes, including economic ones, like equilibria, uh, like how the brain functions. Many thinkers like Friedrich Hayek, for example, they eventually... Uh, Redescribe many of their own earlier theories in the language of cybernetics. And by and large, uh, it disappears from the mainstream conversation by late 1960s, early 1970s, mostly because its ideas, I would say, become hegemonic in many disciplines on their own. And in a discipline like biology, they don't even need to talk about cybernetics anymore. They just accept many of its insights and move on. Partly it has to do with the fact that many of the bridges that cyberneticians built with uh, other disciplines proved to be somewhat exotic and esoteric. So you have projects like neurocybernetics, which often border on cult-like pseudoscience. So there is that. And partly it's because uh, there is less funding available for general research because of the so-called Mansfield Amendment, which appears... In the early 1970s, which essentially says that you need to have an applied goal to whatever it is you're working on in the university setting, you're going to just be funding these comparisons between machines and brains and doing this ontological studies of what it all means for humanity. You actually need to have an applied use, um, and a lot of that then just gets reinvented as artificial intelligence. Now... To answer the question as to whether we're living in cybernetic capitalism, it's a theoretically and historically valid question, but you cannot answer it by postulation and by postulating that, yes, we are living in cybernetic capitalism. So this is where you need to have a proper historical approach rather than just a theoretical one. And a proper historical approach would try to look at uh, adjacent uh, areas and adjacent terms. So you need to look at business history and say, okay, what is so new about these feedback loops and learning mechanisms at the level of the firm that you did not get under fordism or post fordism or taylorism or you didn't or you got it through some kind of statistical control engineering what is it new about a theory that prioritizes cybernetic devices like homeostats or thermostats you name it and uh, Deprioritizes other types of devices that were in use before, like server mechanisms. I'm sorry for using all these technical terms, but this is what this analysis requires. You actually need to go and convince people that the way you made a Toyota factory in the 1950s. Uh, which then inspires all sorts of lean approaches to software development or even to lean government, you need to convince me that it's inspired much more by cybernetics than by statistical control engineering of some kind. And then you need to convince me that somehow cybernetics itself is not just a consequence of statistical control engineering. So, I mean, there are certain intellectual moves that you need to make, operating with an intellectual history, business history, and so forth, to make that case for cybernetic proper. Having studied some of this stuff myself, I, I, I remain unconvinced that Google is to be understood, for example, as a machine that or as a system that encapsulates cybernetic principles. It encapsulates learning principles. There is clearly a lot of learning going on. Had that, could, could you describe those learning processes in a different language, in the language of behaviorism, in the language of psychology of some kind, that was not available to cyberneticians? I would argue that the answer is yes. Anything other than that requires a thorough archival study. And what we end up with in a lot of these essays and accounts that now celebrate the cybernetic mystique it's almost trying to convince the reader by analogy. And it's saying that, well, people who built Google, they worked with people who studied cybernetics, and cybernetics got some money from the military industrial complex and the American government. And it must mean that Google is cybernetic. And I just find it a bit reductionist for my taste as somebody who got a PhD in history of science and did spend some work in the archives. I just find it a bit too reductionist to be convincing, which doesn't mean that that argument cannot be made. It just, as far as I'm concerned, has not been made.
0: The left neo-feudalist argument that you take the most seriously, as, as you mentioned earlier, is that put forward by Cédric Durand. You write, quote, "...contrary to assumptions by some on the left," Durand argued, "...financial activities do not have to be predatory." In a well-functioning system, they could help to advance capitalist production by facilitating advanced financing, for example. However, from the 1970s onwards, this accumulation-friendly feature of modern finance—Durant dubs it simply innovation—was overtaken by two more sinister dynamics— The first, rooted in the logic of dispossession, as theorized by Harvey, involved powerful financial institutions leveraging their connections to the state to redirect more public money toward themselves. Here, we are back to the extra economic means of extracting or, more accurately, redistributing value, backed by the close ties between Wall Street and Washington. The second dynamic rooted in the logic of parasitism theorized by Lenin in his analysis of imperialism referred to the various payments, interest, dividends, management fees, that non-financial corporations have to render to financial firms, which stand completely outside the production process. And again, the government response to the 2008 financial crisis... Very much including quantitative easing, was was of course a serious inflection point that caused many Marxists to ask just what the hell was going on with the global political economic order, a question asked once again with the government and central bank responses to the pandemic. Do you disagree with Durant that capitalism has changed in important ways over the past half century of neoliberalism or in financialization? Or do you simply disagree with his argument that these changes mean that we're no longer living under capitalism?
1: Well, before I start, let me try to offer my critique of this more orthodox Marxist obsession with production and making sure that production happens at all costs by channeling finance, technology, and everything else into it. So I do think that Marxism, as a body of thought, has a certain factory bias, and it has to do, again, with the conditions under which Marxism as a body of thought produced by Marx was generated. It was generated in a certain setting in England and under certain conditions. And there is this assumption when you think about capitalism as accumulation via innovation, which is what Robert Brenner calls it, there is a certain bias of thinking that, well, The only place where you can have innovation at scale is inside the traditional production process of a factory. It's like the default assumption that Marxists make. And then the entire questioning becomes about, A, whether our factories and capitalist enterprises are really producing and innovating whether our technology system is supporting them by making it easier to invest into capital goods or make capital goods, and whether our financial system is there to serve the needs of expanding production and of buying new capital goods. And, I mean, it's coherent. It's coherent only if you think that there is no other possible way and place for large-scale transformative innovation to occur in society. That was, in fact, the case in 18th and 19th century Britain. Is it the case in the 21st century? I'm not so sure. And this is where I think even the Italian autonomists kind of got there way ahead of most Orthodox Marxists by pointing out that a lot of truly transformative uh, learning processes, innovative processes, discovery processes that happen in society they merge to some extent from the bottom up, from collaboration within people, there is more to life than just producing things in a factory. Of course, if you want to build a theory about how do you make airplanes, how do you cure COVID, clearly you're not going to say, ah, by talking to my neighborhood buddies, uh, I'm going to invent a COVID vaccine, right? So is half a point to some extent, for certain types of inventions and innovations. But I think it shouldn't completely blind us to the fact that technology is there, artificial intelligence is there, cloud computing is there, quantum computing is there. How would our process of creation, innovation and discovery in a society look like if we actually assumed that there is more to generating new knowledge than just inventing it in factory settings. Whether that factory is a communist, socialist, or capitalist one. And I'm afraid that with a very few exceptions of people like maybe Raymond Williams and maybe like some Hungarians like Georgi Marcos, very few Marxist theorists have consistently thought about this problem because they ignore it. Because it doesn't have to do with production. It doesn't have to do with large-scale you know, conveyor belts, making cars. Cars, that's what we want. You read Robert Brenner, and that's what it's all about. It's about cars. <laughs> and it's about cars because historically it's been about cars. This is what happens to Japan. This is what happens to Germany. That's what happens to South Korea. And we basically want to make sure that we can have this 21st century socialism built with 1950s car industry in mind. And I just find it so regressive. I don't want to say reactionary, but to me, it's a lost opportunity because clearly the resources are there. It's just that there are no Marxists thinking about how to use them for something other than making cars in a 1950s factory. So when I criticize somebody like Cédric Durand, clearly I have I approach it from this perspective, even though I don't make it explicit in the essay, I approach it partly from this critique that, well, I don't know, maybe we are looking for innovation in the wrong places, and maybe our theory of socialism as a kind of sustained effort of generating innovation differently is already so biased by capitalist dynamics that we are looking in the wrong places. Now, if we put that aside then, I mean, I do agree with Cedric by and large that there are certain changes that have occurred in global economy over the last 30, 35 years, 40 years, which may have resulted in certain stagnating tendencies, partly because of the shift of power to the financial sector, partly because of the fact that the financial sector perhaps is not as, Conducive and is not as incentivized, to use business speak, to engage in the kind of innovation-friendly accumulation that a theory of industrial capitalism suggests, I am very much on board with all of that. The reason why I thought it was worth bringing up Cedric's account of the global financial industry and the global economy from the financial perspective into the picture is because His account of the digital industry and of Silicon Valley, essentially, seems to be an extension and a replication of that argument, uh, only that now he's looking at the digital platforms and not financial ones. And there is very little that he sees uh, in terms of this redeeming, innovation-friendly dynamic that he did kind of acknowledge was possible in the financial sphere. When we shift to technology, By and large, the situation is grim. It's really feudalism, full-blown feudalism of some kind.
0: Where does Brenner's view fit in here that, quote, the long-term stagnation of the U.S. economy in conditions of global manufacturing overcapacity has led powerful elements of the American ruling class to abandon their interest in productive investment and turn instead to the upward redistribution of wealth by political means? You mentioned that you were sympathetic to Cedric's argument that around stagnation, do you agree that the root of that stagnation is in part in some sort of global manufacturing overcapacity?
1: But I think these accounts are not mutually exclusive. So you can have the Brennerian account emphasizing uh, overcapacity and all of the crisis that happens because of the structural catch-up dynamics built into the global economy, that there is always a new challenger which then comes in and makes your investments into productive capacity obsolete because they can produce cheaper. This is an internal feature of capitalist economy for Brenner. Uh, you can reconcile it with a more historical account of the last 30, 40, 50 years. Which again, depending on the perspective, both theoretical and historical you take, you can also argue it's a historical feature and of the capitalist system. And thinkers like Giovanni Arrighi would argue precisely that, that it just it we move in long cycles and it takes 300 years for that stage of financialization to set in. But it's inevitable, just like it's inevitable that your car manufacturing capacity will become obsolete while once your neighbor develops it with, better and cheaper technologies so you can reconcile the two and here you know in defense of Brenner and people who follow his approach of course you can say that ultimately he's trying to explain the laws of motion which as he would put it of the capitalist system and it's all correct to some extent and you know some people argue it doesn't account actually enough for labor and the, the way that labor contests all this moves across borders to produce cheaper and faster and more efficiently. But that's not my problem with that account. My problem with that account is that you can be a fantastic analyst of all these decisions to reallocate capital across borders, uh, seeking more efficient and more profitable investment opportunities, and it still wouldn't give you any good idea what another system and another mode of production should be like other than just saying, well, we'll now run our global car industry under socialism in a more efficient and rational manner. Yeah, because for a lot of socialists and Marxists, that's what you want. You want to make sure that you run everything in a way that is less turbulent, and you make sure that it's less turbulence through planning, through rational deployment of resources, etc. etc. I'm not saying that that's all that follows from Brenner, and of course, there are important changes for labor and so forth but as a horizon of what we should be expecting in 2022 that just seems very little uh, to me right and, and, and then maybe it's not even maybe it's not even what we should be insisting on I mean it's a great as an analysis of the conjuncture in which we are in the contemporary moment with the global economy is that I'm not denying that at all but as a it just fails to excite. And it fails to excite, I think, precisely because it has no use for modern information technology other than just the supporting roles for making cars or flying cars or whatever the next cool thing will be. right? And as long as you cannot imagine a way of generating creativity, innovation, discovery out of the stuff of everyday life and not just of working in the factory, I think you are not doing Marxism and Socialism properly. And uh, I know a lot of Marxists would disagree with me, and they would say that this is just all frivolous thinking about uh, castles in the air, but alas, you know, I can respond with the same set of uh, (laughs) critiques to their own arguments, because again, I'm still not entirely convinced that making sure that our cow production is more efficient than under capitalism is necessarily a good deployment of our cognitive and political resources.
0: Durant, you write, quote, argues that the rise of intangibles, usually concentrated at the most profitable points of the global value chain, led to the emergence of four new types of rent. What gives the digital economy its peculiar neo and techno feudal flavor is that while workers are still being exploited in all the old capitalist ways, it is the new digital giants armed with sophisticated means of predation who benefit most. Is he wrong that, say, Apple calls the shots vis-a-vis Foxconn. what what lessons should we draw from the way that the global value chain has been is organized and has been reorganized?
1: So there is definitely an important aspect to the work that people like Cedric Durand and a lot of people in his orbit, uh, many of them actually in the global South and in Latin America um, do uh, when it comes to understanding the ways in which power relations, inside the digital economy actually work so who has more power how does the provision of certain services like cloud computing or i don't know artificial intelligence by one provider how does it expand their power in other domains uh, so you can actually have a very thorough analysis of how network effects the fact that data is accumulated by all these platforms and giants how all of that reinforces the market power, market share. Again, those are very ambiguous terms. All of that is perfectly fine. I agree with that. There are new things on the table because data is different from, I don't know, cotton. Clearly, we should not be blind to this structural changes in how power is accumulated, how market power is exercised, how it's entrenched, and so forth. The question that we should be asking rather is where we would like to take this insights. Whether we would like to take these insights to this more traditional orthodox theory and then map them out, again, on some kind of Brennerian account of accumulation via innovation that the current system doesn't deliver, or whether we would like to take them somewhere else, maybe into this more historical Wallersteinian dependency theory, structuralism, global south, companies are as important as other actors kind of account, that might not be as analytically and theoretically sophisticated as the Brunerian account, but might, at the end of the day, provide a more useful guide to action and actually contesting the power of banks, big tech giants, uh, the State Department, or whoever else you think stands in the way of you achieving some kind of economic, political, and social autonomy. And, you know, and what really, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm relatively young, you know, I wasn't participant in the Brenner debate in the 70s, I wasn't even alive, so it's very hard for me without spending months and, and, and weeks of my life to understand the full context of those discussions, but there was one line in Brenner's response to Wallerstein from the middle late 70s that really triggered me, and it was him accusing Wallerstein of, like, representing third-worldism. And, you know, and when I read that, you know, and I, of course I understand what he probably meant in the most kind of vulgar sense of that word, but what's wrong with third-worldism? I mean, it's just such a strange thing to say at a time when you have probably the greatest challenge, if you're looking at the 70s, you know, the greatest challenge to the, global capitalist order led by the United States with Henry Kissinger and others in the vanguard comes from entities like the Group of 77 uh, or the Non-Aligned Movement. I mean, how could you be complaining about sort of It's just so strange. So, I mean, I'm naturally suspicious of any theoretical framework that doesn't recognize where its real allies are. (laughs) And that's why, naturally, I'm just a little bit and not just a little bit, but much more inclined to agree with this much messier historical and maybe less analytically pure account that emerges from the second group with, you know, the dependency theorists, Wallerstein, Arigi, Gunter Frank, and Samir Amin and others, rather than to stick with this purity of we've built a fantastic model about laws of motion, just that it's not obvious what you do with it. Unless you happen to represent, I don't know, a trade union somewhere in a deindustrializing area in Midwest of the United States, which is not to say anything bad about it, but it's very hard to take that perspective and turn it into some kind of a universal lens through which you should interpret what we should actually be doing to make the lives of people across the globe a little bit more bearable.
0: Along the lines of what we do with it, you write, quote, The not-so-good news is that, in undertaking this speculative exercise in apocalyptic scenario planning, the left has a hard time differentiating itself from the right. In fact, the two ideological poles have all but converged on a shared description of the new reality. For many in both camps, the end of actually existing capitalism no longer means the advent of a better day, whether democratic socialism, anarcho-syndicalism, or pure classical liberalism. Instead, the emerging consensus is that the new regime is nothing short of feudalism, an ism with very few respectable friends. Here, are, are you suggesting that the neo-feudalist diagnosis has as much to do with the left's pessimism about our own historical projects? as the techno-feudal thesis also, or even mostly, a response to shrunken political horizons?
1: Um... To some extent, I would say that this is definitely the case. But to another extent, we also have to consider that, uh, as I've said, we have not made very good sense of what's going on in the digital economy and what the drivers are. So uh, to mask that deficiency, analytical deficiency, in the most spectacular headline-grabbing manner, it's very tempting to produce an explanation that shocks And the explanation that invokes techno-neo-feudalism shocks. It's meant to shock because that's not how history is supposed to happen. And it shocks to the same extent that, you know, you can say that the Frankfurt School and Adorno and Horkheimer shocked because they said, yes, we have enlightenment, but that enlightenment leads to barbarism, and that leads to fascism and Nazism, and uh, that's where progress leads. And to some extent, the argument about, Neo feudalism has that very same shock value. It tells you, yes, you have capitalism, you have Google, you have Amazon. You think that these people are building uh, this fantastic capitalist utopia, but in fact, uh, they're just getting us closer to feudalism. And then who knows, maybe we'll just end up with slavery. And who knows then, maybe we'll all be living in caves. Right? So from there, you can see that it's a very appealing account. And I've dabbled in that as a younger, immature thinker myself. I have thought it was a great framework, and I've even published a couple of short newspaper columns and given a couple of uh, talks where I seriously engaged with that framework. And having thought about it for several years afterwards, I've just come to the conclusion that it doesn't explain anything, even though it does generate headlines. Uh, so this is where I think a lot of people on the left, of course, they attempt it to jump into the debate and even recycle some of the talking points that come from the right because it gets them media space and airspace and maybe it's not such a bad thing that you get leftists to talk about anything including Marx and capitalism and modes of production. So there is of course uh, something of a positive side to this. in the broad scheme of things, I think it just generates so much confusion, especially among young people, people who are spending their times at some kind of techno-feudal, neo-feudal subreddits on Reddit, and they take this theory seriously, and they're trying to make sense of it, and they end up, I think, potentially not at all on the left. Yeah. Because, as I also tried to point out in that essay, uh, if you really want to be analytically coherent, you're much better making this critique from the right and really insisting...
0: Like Curtis Yarvin.
1: Well, like Curtis Yarvin, to some extent, this, you know, the, the, the thinker who's often associated with uh, Peter Thiel and this idea of dark enlightenment. And I don't think that he necessarily has a stake in the uh, capitalist transition debate. It's not just <laughs> to him, if you can call it something else, as long as it preserves hierarchies that are generated as a result of some social processes, he'll be happy. So it's not that Yarvin sees it necessarily as a way of... Actually, to be honest, I think Yarvin is a more complicated case because what Yarvin really wants is to preserve hierarchies. And there is a certain dynamic, it's not the only dynamic in capitalism, but there is one dynamic in capitalism that destroys hierarchies. So to some extent, when Marx and Engels write that everything solid melts into air... I mean, it's correct. It's not the only thing that happens under capitalism. There is also plenty of stuff that is like air that becomes solid. <laughs> so there is also that. But I think people like Jarvin, they hate this fact that uh, hierarchies sometimes get dissolved. And instead of this power relations and political figures that have charisma and that have authority, you get commodities. And now it's the invisible leviathan rather than the physical leviathan that exercises power. So that's why they want the state to come in and enforce it. But of course that's not what original feudalism was. I mean the notion of sovereignty under feudalism was very different. You didn't actually have a strong state. You had overlapping sovereignties. It's all very different. So I, that's why I think these people don't necessarily insist on wanting a techno-new feudal system as such. I mean they would be happy with the label but it's very hard for them to be coherent when insisting on it from the right but neoliberals on the other hand who again there are variations and gradations there but people who really believe in markets who really want commodities everywhere who really don't want rigid social structures we can argue whether this ideal type of neoliberalism is accurate and correct and I have a lot of things to say about that too but if we for a moment assume that this is a correct ideal type that these people do want market relations and they want market civilization everywhere. To some extent, Friedrich Hayek wanted that. He thought progress happens because the cash nexus replaces every other nexus of social organization. So the more of our social activity becomes subject to economic rules and market rules, the further we advance. So if you take Friedrich Hayek as a representative of the school of thought, clearly Friedrich Hayek will tell you, well, you know the stagnation is dynamic we are seeing in the current economy they are like feudalism and we need to get rid of them and we really need to get back to this great capitalist system where entrepreneurs raise money they invest it in production things advance because that's how we manage to move forward with all of the associated mechanisms, social coordination enables through information, distributed uh, knowledge through the markets, all of that. But that's just the supporting mechanism for a social system, and a social system is capitalism. And whatever stands in its way, like this rigid uh, hierarchies or rentiers or uh, technorentiers, we need to get rid of them. So it's a reasonable position for a certain type of neoliberal, it's not a very reasonable position for a certain type of leftist. So the fact that both leftists and neoliberals, and to some extent, even... The extreme far right. ...quasi-fascists, yeah. <laughs> quasi-fascists converge upon that, to me, it's more of a sign of ideological confusion in two of these camps. The only ones with very clear ideas remain the Hayekian and neoliberals, as far as I'm concerned. There's
0: another camp, and you wrote a coda about it that didn't make it into the essay, on on Web3. What is Web3, and how do its proponents and investors, and there's a lot of overlap between proponents and investors here, how do they envision a more decentralized and more capitalist Internet as the solution to a system that they, that they likewise diagnose as techno-feudal? Why are the diagnoses that we live under some sort of techno-feudalist hellscape why are they so popular in Silicon Valley, of all places, the headquarters of our, of our purported feudal overlords?
1: Um, so Web3, I would say, is nothing but a brand. So it's a great uh, slogan. It's an ideology. It's an indication of where a certain strand of venture capital and certain very rich individuals, billionaires, and so forth would like the rest of society to be, technologically, ideationally, economically, and so forth. But once you scratch a little bit deeper into that ideology and that brand, you discover that the proposition that informs this program presents the current environment as heavily hierarchical, centralized, dominated by this invisible-invisible leviathans and fundamentally undemocratic. And to make it more democratic, we need to switch to technologies that will be decentralized, that will not rely on certain central nodes, that will avoid hierarchies, that will allow participants and users of these projects and infrastructures to have a say. Uh, in how they are governed, Um, that, say, will be quantified and expressed as their share of ownership, in many cases, of the underlying projects. So, essentially, we would be able to move from a system where we get free services uh, in this uh, digital economy that relies on partly, not fully, but partly, on exploiting and collecting our data, to an economy where we feel like shareholders of the services and our interests will be reconciled with theirs. So the more sustainable and the more profitable they are, the better it will be for us, their users, less shareholders. So the idea of empowerment that informs many of the crypto projects that are known under this brand, and I only refer to it as brand of Web3, it's that. Is that essentially you can turn everybody into a little shareholder of uh, a given tech project. Its infrastructure will look a little bit different from the centralized infrastructure that powers the rest of the web. And that very often to enforce some uh, community behavior and community dynamics inside this project, you will need to rely maybe on certain reputational mechanisms. So you will need to incentivize people to behave somehow, right? Because you're not just trying to have them as passive shareholders. You actually want people to engage in something. You want them to participate. You want them to share tips on how to improve the system. And in order to improve their participation, you would like to maybe give them a certain reputational score, So people who contribute more maybe will be entitled to more shares and they will be entitled to a greater stake in the project. So you build these direct links between level of engagement and essentially the payoff. Um, And the consequence of this, of course, is that very often your importance in this particular community becomes Uh, a function of your participation in it and also of how others think of your participation in it. So it's not just an objectively calculated score of some kind. Partially, it reflects what the rest of the community thinks about you. And, you know, it might seem very irrelevant, but ultimately, as long as some of these digital services have infrastructure like, functions, and they become the new default way to offer information services, education services, or healthcare services, and that more or less is the agenda, beyond just financial services for many of the crypto and Web3 projects, you are entering a brave, I don't want to say this, no, you're entering a completely new environment whereby uh, the provision of services that were previously offered based on some kind of public service model, where you could heavily regulate and say, everybody gets equal access. You know, we're broadcasting television or radio and everybody's entitled to the same rules or we're offering a transportation service and anybody can essentially enjoy it regardless of who they are and where they are. You're switching to a model where your reputation and your standing inside the market, inside the platform, inside your community as expressed through reputation, karma, financial standing of some kind, some kind of a crypto portfolio determines what kind of services you end up entitled to, how much you can enjoy them, and you are converting from the paradigm of rights, which is what the previous paradigm was. You were entitled to certain things as a citizen who was paying taxes to a public entity that was then offering certain, I want to say services, but public services. To a commercial paradigm where you become almost party to a transaction and your standing in the community shapes what and how much you can expect. And of course, it's not unique to this crypto Web3 space. You can argue that something like Uber Airbnb, which already leveraged this reputation system for drivers and for passengers, and for guests and for hosts, they already tapped um, into that market. Uh, and they unleashed some of the strengths. But I would argue the ability to create tokens around any single crypto project very easily, without much effort, turbocharges that logic. Because then you really manage to build reputation systems, heavily financialized and tokenized systems that you can just basically program and bring together. And not all of that is bad. I mean, of course, you can think of fighting climate change by shaping people's behavior, by distributing tokens, by tapping into people's reputation. I mean, there are all sorts of behavioral community shaping dynamics, which the most sophisticated members of this community would describe as mechanism design, which can have even a solidarity-enhancing agenda. All of that is possible. The problem is that once you insert these possibilities into a heavily financialized reality controlled by venture capitalists, by other crypto billionaires and crypto exchanges, this emancipatory horizon of using crypto-like mechanism designed for building solidarity procedures and for building some kind of socialist or quasi-socialist project, it shrinks. So you end up with two or three art projects and 99% of the rest, is just way of essentially reinforcing the power of capital over all of us, of essentially making people more precarious, more vulnerable, and having their reputation somehow become an opening key or closing key to the provision of services. And this, by the way, is what brings us back to the question of feudalism, because if you look outside of the Marxist debates about feudalism and capitalism, and you look more at the liberal democratic ones, Feudalism, of course, is not defined as a mode of production. Rather, it's defined as a political system. And what defines that system, for somebody like the French legal theorist Alain Soupio that I quote extensively in the piece, it's the idea that we are not governed by law. It's not the rule of law over man, which is what a liberal democratic kind of Reichsstaat, the bourgeois rule of law state is like. Rather, it's the rule of man over man. So you're essentially at the mercy of other people, or you're at the mercy of forces that are not inscribed in the Constitution or some kind of liberal democratic rule of law. And that, for thinkers like Supyore, is the primary defining feature of feudalism. And what makes the departure from feudalism so emancipatory is that you replace a system where men rule over other men, the system where its laws codified in the state that rule over man. Of course, Marxists will make all sorts of critiques that all this law is just a product of capitalist social relations anyway, so it doesn't matter. But it's still an important transition, and the only way in which I would accept something useful in bringing back concepts like feudalism or better, refeudalization. It's precisely in analyzing how some of these heavily financialized Web3 crypto projects reintroduce this earlier dynamic where it was all about the rule of man over man, which is what community governance is like, especially heavily financialized community governance is like, and depart from the idea of laws ruling over man through the state.
0: You write that, that we finally need to resolve the Brenner debate. And and that to do so, we need to theorize capitalism so that forms of dispossession, expropriation, and rent figure not just as these things that are exceptional to capitalism, but rather as central to its real historical operation, no matter how messy that historical reality is. It doesn't fit an ideal type, but that's what we've been living under. And you mentioned this earlier, and right, that that Nancy Fraser, who I interviewed back in 2018, that she has among the best resolutions on offer, and also that, quote, Jason Moore, a student of Wallerstein and Giovanni Arrighi may have formulated the new consensus when he wrote that capitalism thrives when islands of commodity production and exchange can appropriate oceans of potentially cheap natures, outside the circuit of capital, but essential to its operation. This holds, of course, not only for cheap natures, there are many other activities and processes to appropriate. So these oceans are broader than Moore suggests. To close out, what frameworks do Moore and Fraser provide to understand how expropriation and exploitation operate together under capitalism? And then at this moment, why why is it that analyzing the relationship between nature and capitalism in particular, that it provides such a powerful tool to analyze the system as a whole, and to figure out what to do about it.
1: Sure. Well, here, ultimately, it's the battle for defining what capitalism is and how extensive and how historical and how massive its definition is allowed to be. And as a byproduct of this mission, uh, we also have to start asking questions like, why even doing this exercise? Are we doing this exercise because we expect some concrete, specific change and Interventions to come forward, maybe new configurations of social actors, maybe new interpretations of where innovation comes from, as I was indicating a bit earlier uh, in my answers. Or do we want this so that we can deploy the older uh, blocks and forces and theories maybe in a more effective manner, but against new targets? Right. And I think this is an unresolved tension inside uh, leftism or Marxism, however you want to call it. And ultimately, it's true that uh, the accumulation of, on the one hand, struggles by various social movements, uh, the climate catastrophe, the fact that we are paying more attention to voices coming from the Global South and the intellectuals coming from the Global South, and we are beginning to understand that maybe their problems need to be understood. With frameworks that go beyond and transcend just the conventional Marxist frameworks without abandoning them, but maybe mixing them uh, with something else. The uh, aggregation of all this, uh, the putting together of all these factors, I think has made the more orthodox Brennerian and Neo Brennerian position very hard to defend because it basically prevents you from seeking the kind of alliances and from understanding what is going on in parts of the world that you have not thought about integrating in your struggles previously, it it prevents you from doing that. And it prevents you from new sorts of claims about social injustice, about new sorts of claims about dispossession that occurred, And it prevents you from having an actually proper historical account of how capitalism developed differently in different parts of the world and how these differences and the exploitation of these differences was actually constitutive of the current world system. And without having this more enriched view of the world system and of the global economy, if you don't want this Vyacheshtanian kind of analytical framework, without understanding our global economy historically uh, in a richer manner, how are we supposed to have a proper evaluation of the progressive or reactionary force of bourgeoisie, of entrepreneurs, or these days of techno-entrepreneurs? Are they the harbingers of progress? Are they the harbingers of reaction? Who are these people? You cannot answer these questions within just the national context. You need international and historical context for that. And you need to understand all the interconnections to digital sector, to energy, to raw materials, to extractivism, of all sorts of foodstuffs and, and, and whatnot. And this is where I just think... It's clear that we're not going to resolve the Brenner debate in a way that would give us a framework that will be as clean and as analytically efficient as the Brenner one. Clearly, that's not what Wallerstein and others were aiming at, and that's why they defined their own system as historical capitalism. Whether the traditional Brennerian objections against the view hold you know, and Brenner, just to remind the listeners who may not have read those exchanges in the 70s, he accused Wallerstein of engaging in some kind of neo-Smithian you know, perversions. In the end of the day, should it matter to people who are generally concerned with emancipation of the global south, of social movements, of reversing extractivism, whether we are leaning more on five frameworks or that might all be very eclectic and sometimes contradictory but they give us a more accurate understanding of what's going on or whether we remain pure and faithful just to one Um, and i don't know i mean i'm not i'm not convinced that winning theoretical debates through purity counts for more than winning political struggles through impurity in that sense And it doesn't mean that you win those struggles in an a-theoretical manner, but the fact that we keep enforcing some kind of borders about what counts as leftism, not even about what counts as Marxism, I just find it a bit unproductive. So naturally and logically, it just seems that we should let this thousand flowers bloom. Uh, the question is whether we would like to derive a single theory from it. And uh, I, sa- I hate to sound uh, pessimistic. I'm, I'm not sure that that one theory is going to resolve our issues. And you know, and I'm not, we're not even going into this other... Maybe we should just flag it towards the end. That I do mention in the essay another promising path that capitalist power approach to understanding capitalism represents. Uh, It doesn't, uh, well, it's an approach that has been in development, I suppose, for almost 20 years now, maybe a bit more, mostly based between Canada and Israel, actually. Mostly now, I think, in in Canada, it's two researchers uh, that have a somewhat tumultuous relationship with Marxism and Marxists. But, you know, it's an account that essentially tells us that we have... Underemphasized uh, the importance of power to understanding of capitalism and that maybe we should put that front and center and focus on how the exercise of political power is actually fundamental to capitalist accumulation. And it means that, yes, maybe we will need to understand capitalism in a more limited manner because we'll have to start looking at it through the lens of firms, very often in corporations, because they are the actors exercising power. So maybe we will lose, partly, this phenomenological perspective of labor. But to be honest, if you look at the Brennerian account, labor is nowhere to be seen then either. (laughs) To be honest, it's all about the laws of motion of capital. So the idea that we should somehow stick to this orthodox framework because it allows us to think a little bit deeper about labor, I just don't buy it. And if we were to think a little bit more attentively about the kind of power techniques that corporations use to advance, to conquer new markets. You'll bring all of the actors that are currently missing from our accounts of what's going on. I don't really want to call it capitalism. If you don't call it capitalism, call it that. But I do want to have a framework that will tell me what was going on in Chile in the early 1970s by bringing in the State Department, ITT, the CIA into the picture. Not as some kind of extraneous actors that were there supporting capital and Chilean capitalists, but as fundamental actors. And unless
0: you And we haven't even touched we haven't even touched on border controls or the carceral state.
1: Exactly. And you know you can of course then need to bring in police training programs, military training programs, and basically show how what makes capital accumulation possible is the, 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 the ability to imprison people and to police people and to torture them and to threaten them with violence, right? And if we want to bracket all of that out as somehow requiring further justification or some kind of new terms like carceral capitalism or racial capitalism, I'm just not sure we're winning much so I do think that perhaps we do need to put the question of power a little bit more central to our analysis it doesn't mean that that particular framework coming out of these two thinkers is the right one but I think they're correct to identify certain deficiencies in traditional marxist accounts and the sooner we can resolve them the better but again I think many of these deficiencies were identified as early as 1950s by thinkers in the global south and elsewhere
0: Well, Yevgeny Morosov, thank you very much.
1: Sure. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Yevgeny Morosov has written several books and essays about technology and politics. Trained in the history of science at Harvard, he is also the founder of The Syllabus, a knowledge curation service. His podcast about the radical history of computing and cybernetic planning in Latin America will launch later this year. I posted a link to Yevgeny's website and to the syllabus in the show notes. I also posted a link to his NLR essay that we discussed during this interview. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, "...the veiled slavery of the wage workers in Europe needed, for its pedestal, slavery pure and simple in the New World." While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. Or during summer schedule more like new episodes every other week, but usually every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Tomus Frankel. Our senior advisors are Thea Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's an iTunes or whatever such site, please also rate and review us those reviews help introduce us to new listeners but what really and truly does that is you telling other people to listen to the podcast why you like the podcast why they might like the podcast etc please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong even a few bucks is huge